I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Ireland women's football manager Vera Powell apologises after the Irish team are filmed singing an IRA chant during post-match celebrations. But is there really a place for songs such as this in modern Ireland? This should not have happened and we sincerely apologise for it. And it's for us as a team, it's um, an educational point of view. Following nearly eight months of making Killarney their new home, 135 Ukrainian refugees were told they were to pack up and move to Westport to make room for more, only for the decision to be reversed at the 11th hour. Have we run out of space to give these people the stability that they deserve? We collected our things and everything, so now we are very grateful for that, that uh, uh, we, we can continue our life here. And later, what exactly are data centres and why do they pose a threat to our energy supply? Do join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. First tonight, Ireland manager Vera Pau and the FAI have apologised after a video emerged of players singing a chant in the post-World Cup celebrations with the lyrics, Up the Ra. Well, perhaps it's just a chant to some, but to others, it harks back to a dark time in Irish history we would rather forget. So is there a place for songs like this in sports or in modern society at all? For more on this, I'm joined by sports journalist Alana Canan, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, Sinn Féin Senator Lynn Boylan and journalist Michael O'Regan. And we might just begin by taking a look at that video that went uh, viral today. So, Alana, how did this video actually come to light? Yeah, so obviously, Kerry, yesterday there was a hallmark, landmark achievement for the Irish women's national team. They bet Scotland 1-0 thanks to an Amber Barrett goal and that sent them to their first ever major tournament in the World Cup. Um, so in that regard, you can't but be delighted for them. But it seems in the celebrations afterwards, you know, there's been, uh, they were all singing a lot of songs. I think it has to be said, this wasn't just an isolated one in that regard. So um, yeah, that's how it came about. But I think it's a pity because it's a tarnishing a wee bit. It's taken over the headlines and really the story should be, 
you know, this f phenomenal achievement that the Irish women's national team have achieved. But somebody was ever. recording it, where they are, they were coming live on a social media. Is, is that how it came to light? Yeah, one of the players in the dressing room um, what happened to be recording it. Now, the player is a young player, a young goalkeeper, Grace Maloney. A lot of people will be familiar with her. And as Vera mentioned in a lot of the interviews she had um, conducted today, you know, the issue isn't that it made it to social media, but rather that it shouldn't have happened in the first place. So... Um, they've apologised for it. I think that should be the end of it and the headline should be more with the, as we were talking about, the amazing achievement that this is for the women's national team. And there has been, in fairness, a fulsome apology here from the FAI, from the manager, from individual players today, hasn't there? There has. And like I'm saying there, like this seems to have dominated the headlines. But, you know, there was other instances even last night where there were, um, you know, when Amber Barrett scored the goal, she uh, made reference to the Krishla, um uh, victims who tragically passed away last week and you know that's the true mark of a role model and there are plenty of them in that team and I think that's more testament to the type of characters on the women's national team than that video that emerged. Uh, Timmy Dooley do you think it has been overblown this story today and the response to it? Uh, look I think it's like a lot of things it, it, it got out of hand uh, and, and, and I think it's, it's unfortunate for all concerned. I, I don't think the young women who, who were playing for Ireland last night meant any insult um, they're young. They, many of them wouldn't even remember uh, the atrocities that were foisted on society by the IRA over a 25-year campaign. There's no doubt that song has become a bit of an anthem. It's sung in pubs at 21st and 18th. I'm not saying it's right. Of course it's not. And it does generate a very significant amount of hurt for families in the six counties and in the 26th. There are people in my community um, who lost loved ones as a result of the actions of the IRA over the years. And they would rightly be traumatised. And I understand that. But to foist that, all of that on, on the shoulders of these young women, I think might be pushing it a little bit too far. I think they've, they've recognised that it, was, it, it wasn't the right thing to do. They've apologised. And I'll be surprised if any of them ever partake in something like that again. It's a lesson learned. Um, but I, I don't think we should over-politicise it. We all, those of us of, of a certain age group... Because it has dominated today, as Alana said. I you know, know, the first story in all of the bulletins today wasn't the win, it was yeah, the song uh, once it emerged. I, I know how that happens. I, I've seen it happen in, 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 in other circumstances. It happens to politicians, it happens to journalists, it happens to all of us from time to time. And we often feel that it's unfair, it's perhaps a slow news day in some respects, and it, 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 it tends to overshadow um, the achievements of this team. It shouldn't have happened. They were very quick to recognise uh, the hurt, that the potential hurt that it would cause to victims of IRA violence. They cleared it up really quickly, uh, and I, I, I don't think it requires further comment. I, I know there was some quite sensational interviews done from the UK that suggested these young women needed to be educated. I don't think... I, th I thought that was probably... This was an interview on Sky News That was today. a particularly low point. That was particularly derogatory um, uh, and, and, and I would say bigoted. Um, these, these young women were not in any way uh, promoting a, a sectarian approach uh, to life on this island. The IRA campaign for sure did that for 25 years. And I think this has become an anthem that many young people sing it they, they wouldn't even okay. know what the IRA was if you asked them in, in detail. Just, is it ever acceptable, thing. Lynn Boylan, well, to I, say or to sing up the ra? I think, look, that anybody I've spoken to who are football fans want to talk about the fact that the women have 
set a record in what they have achieved from going from five years ago sitting in an airport and sharing tracksuits and getting changed in airport toilets. I, I grew up in the same estate as Katie McCabe. I played football very badly, but I fought in school in a convent school to allow us to play soccer and they told us it was unladylike. We're now looking at people who grew up around the corner from me are heroes. They, do you mean yes, they, what they achieved? Bots. And I think that, that there, there's a, it's been sensationalised and, and that's fine and that, that's the way the media wants to run. But any of the football fans I've spoken to, they want to talk about but what was... The, what, no, I think that's unfair and boiler to say it's the media. It's, it and actually I didn't say it was the media. I said no, you there did are, actually say it was the media. There There's a lot of the victims. To talk about it. There's a lot of people who are victims of what the IRA did who have come out today and say they are deeply hurt, including Austin Stack, whose father, of course, was killed. He said, I am deeply hurt and offended when I hear this song. I, I am talking about the fact that the women's football team qualified for the World Cup. And this morning, I heard the news bulletins, but the fans that I spoke to wanted to talk with you, wanted to know was how hard it is to get to Australia and whether or not they get their credit union Okay, load, well, just back and, to that and point of the, original, the, the, the original question so that I asked. My, which... my point is that they have to be... Uh, hailed for what they have achieved for women's sports yeah. and for so women's and for wider. qualifying for the World Cup. And I think they came out, they apologised and I, I do think we need to move on okay. and actually just honour them for what they've done and particularly yes, and I think given most people that do... Amber Barris last night All right, in, uh, if in you just the, let me the in there, If you just let me in there, and, uh, Lynn, how, how because she if you just let me in there, Lynn to, to Boylan, the, I think you've made your victims. And point. I think that's what most, most football fans want to talk about. Uh, they've apologised. Arlene Foster was tweeting today, she said that this, this is the legacy of comments that there was no alternative and that they were a great bunch of lads, the IRA, and not cold-blooded murderers. She's directing that, I believe, at Sinn Féin. Well, do you uh, think Sinn Féin weren't in the dressing room, whether Arlene Foster likes or not, Sinn Féin weren't in the dressing room. This is about a chant that the team sang. They have apologised for it, and I think the okay. apology needs to be accepted. Michael O'Regan? Uh, it was absolutely inappropriate. I disagree with Lynn that... Um, People wanted to talk about the match, just marvellous as it was. This was utterly inappropriate. And we also have to uh, recognise where it happened. This, was after, this wasn't in some remote pub late at night down the country. This was after a major sporting occasion and a tremendous win by a brilliant group of young people. Uh, so, you know, they, they, had the, they had the country behind them. Uh, I don't think there was any, any malice in it. I think it was very, very careless. And I think the apologies uh, were very good and they came very quickly. I can recall covering a by-election in Limerick many years ago. And in a pub there, a group of students from the University of Limerick singing Sean Sout from Gary Owen. Now, Sean Sout was uh, an IRA activist in the 1950s. I think most of them probably didn't know who Sean Sout was, but it was a rollicking, lively ballad and it was being sung. Now that was in a pub, you know, in Limerick City. But uh, this this was this was after a huge sporting occasion, and up, it upset a, a good number of people, mainly, of course, those who were victims of the IRA. So, is there sort of a disconnect by saying "Ua up the ra" and the troubles? Do you think among a certain generation? It, there is, there, there is, unfortunately, but uh, you know. It, particularly post-Good Friday Agreement and all that, everybody has to be very, very careful. And something that might sound like a raucous song, mm. late at night, or indeed after a major sporting occasion, as we saw 
uh, it's not appropriate anymore because you're, uh, it never was appropriate, but it's particularly inappropriate now, uh, given uh, the circumstances after the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, you're upsetting many, many people. Well, what about what Timmy Dooley said? Look, it's been sort of a, a perhaps a bit of a slow news day and, and the media make hay with these kind of stories. Do you agree no, with that? No, I, I wouldn't agree. No, no, I, I think that the public became, it's clear from social media, that the public became very engaged with this. Now, I think the reaction would be the same, by the way, if there was uh, somebody singing a song uh, lionising the um, Protestant paramilitaries mm. uh, or the British Army, you know, g given the atrocities that were placed at their doorstep. Uh, so uh, I think uh, people engaged with it, and I think many, many people found it yeah. deeply upsetting. What about the comments today, uh, Lynn Boylan, from Brian Warfield, from the Wolf Tones, who, who wrote this song? He said, I'm a true Republican, a true Irish Republican. He said on one radio station today and another radio station, he said, we live in a country called Ireland, we're Irish people, we've suffered terribly over the years, and we should be able to express that. Do you agree? Well, I mean, I'm not here to speak for the Wolf Tones or the author of the, of the song. I think it was, what annoyed more people, what I saw, was the fact that, that Sky interview and the lecture that was given to, to the footballer about whether or not they needed more education in Irish history. I think that was deeply offensive. If Brian Warfield wants to come out and talk about his song, that's his right to do so. Do you have any issue with the phrase, up the ra? I'm not, like, <laughs> I mean, the phrase was said by other people. It's not a song I would yes. necessarily sing. But, do you mean, people are allowed to sing songs. Do you mean, it is unfortunate that this was went out on live stream and the, the team have apologised for it. But I'm not here to defend the Wolf Tone song. I mean, the Wolf Tones can speak for themselves. They wrote the song. Lots yeah, of people sing the song. Lots of people sing Sean South from Gary Owen. Uh, I do think it's slightly disingenuous to say that young people aren't aware. Young people are very aware of their history. I don't uh, think they are, actually. I don't think they're aware at all. And maybe through no fault of their own, uh, the young people who were singing that last night, I think were clearly, uh, clearly didn't appreciate the horror of the IRA campaign and the horror of what went on in Northern Ireland and elsewhere, and the death and injury and damage to property and all that. And maybe it's, maybe it's the way history is taught in schools, I don't know. Or maybe it's just a generational thing. Alana, you're the youngest person on this panel. Is it a, a, a generational thing when you're, if somebody's singing up the ra, are they actually kind of singing, you'll never beat the Irish? Is that the sort of headspace somebody's in? Because the player, when she was asked today, do you need more education, said, no, I'm well aware of the history of Ireland and the troubles and the death and the destruction that that caused. Listen, I think the point has been made. That's not what the players were interpreting mm. it as. And it bear a remark yeah. afterwards that while they didn't mean to cause offence, it obviously did. And uh, I think what got so many people invested in this team were the positive stories surrounding them. And there are so many, as we know, you know, Katie McCabe, Denise O'Sullivan, world names, Chloe Misaki, who was even on that Sky interview, received major plaudits for mm. the way she handled it. She was very respectful. She was. And, um, yeah, you know, she's come back from... She's had a success story of her own. You know, she's come back from injuries and um, illnesses and come back better than ever. But so. do you not think they do have a responsibility now? I mean, they are the national football team. Mm. Yeah, with And that with that comes yeah, responsibility. Yeah, with that success and this um, international success on such a level that they have achieved last night comes, obviously, more scrutiny... But like I mentioned earlier, there are so many great role models in this team and I think they should be more so known for that than uh, this isolated incident. Uh, Timmy, why is this chant, do you think, 
being passed down to future younger generations? Well, it's a raucous anthem, and I think it's the, the, the melody and the cadence and the rhythm of it, uh, with the words to it, that, 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 that tends to be a, a, a sing-along. I have witnessed it at 21st and 18s, should we still be singing this song, do you well, think? Well, I, I think we shouldn't, but, but, but I'm also mindful that politicians shouldn't be dictating what should or shouldn't be sang at a party. We, we, we have a free society, thankfully. Um, society that isn't influenced by the Catholic Church or by paramilitaries or sectarian uh, military organisations like it was up to a number of years ago. So at least we have those freedoms now that we didn't. Um, I, look, but is singing it being disrespectful? to people like Austin Stack? I don't think that the intent of no. either no, them I'm just saying the kids, to, And I'm talking but I outside well see, I know, of the football I know team Austin, singing it. I know Austin for years. I know his family. I know what they've gone through. It is an appalling uh, vista that was visited on that family. They will, ne they will never see a way through it, nor would you expect them to. Um, but, 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 but I think you've got to take the whole thing in the round and in, in, in context. We should be discouraging, and I think that's probably one of the outcomes from this particular event, that people will be more mindful that there are people in a community who have been infected, uh, had been affected over time by the campaign. And in fairness, Vera Pau did say that, that the team would reflect. And yeah. I don't think anybody thinks and that they were singing even it. And it's not even the team. I think they may, they, may have done, they may have done the whole society some service. I think lots of young people will reflect a little bit more on it now than they might have in the past. And therefore, so I think there's, there's learnings all around. But I just wouldn't want it to dominate at all the success that has been achieved. No, or I overshadow think, that achievement. Overshadow no. it. And, you know, it's, it's, but, but I think it's, it's a an point important worth issue, making. but I think it, we move on from Yeah, there. I think it's a point worth making, though, Michael, that this is not an isolated incident. You know, you could go to many as a terrace of a match, uh, including in Celtic, and you'll hear this song repeated, you know, ad nauseum. I'm just looking at some of the tweets today. I can't overstate how normal it is to hear this when you're out and about in Ireland, especially when football is involved. It 100% wasn't malicious. Uh, another tweet today that said, never apologise for singing about our struggle against the oppressor. I mean, Twitter was really divided today. A lot of people saying you should be allowed to sing this Oh, song. yeah. There's a school of thought out there that it was pretty harmless. Uh, I think the team... Well, individually, the Twitter isn't necessarily to reflect. No, it it's absolutely not. But, it's up, a, but there were you know, tens yeah, yeah, of thousands yeah. of tweets. Oh, there were, yeah. there were tens and, of and, thousands. It really engaged. I have my own views on that yeah. too. But, but I, I think uh, the manner in which the team individually and collectively handled it yes. uh, was very, very impressive. And you could see that this was an error of judgment. It happened in the euphoria of the moment. Yeah. The apology uh, was unequivocal uh, from all sides, in, from individual players and that and from manager, it's, uh, so I think from that point of view, something that could have maybe gone on and festered was uh, killed at birth, the controversy was killed at birth, so to speak. Yeah, and we want to draw a light under it. And we, we wish them well and we look forward to another Charlton Europe. Yeah, absolutely, bring it on. Right. My thanks to my panel for that. After the break, relief in Kerry, as Ukrainian refugees are told they can stay. You're very welcome back. Now, Ukrainian refugees who were told they were being moved from their accommodation centre in Killarney, County Kerry, to Westport in County Mayo, will now remain in the Kerry town following sustained local and political opposition to the move. But for others who have tried to begin a new life, wherever it has been, they have not been so lucky. 
if we can't offer them a stable place to call home, are we doing our best for them? Well, here in studio to discuss this now is Anatoly Primakov, Director of Ukraine Action, Fina Foyle's Timmy Dooley, Sinn Féin's Lynn Boylan, and we are also joined by Barrow Media's political correspondent, Sean Defoe, and by a Skype this evening by the former mayor of Killarney and county councillor, Niall Callagher. And Niall, I'm going to come to you. Can you describe, I suppose, that moment today when these individuals, 135 of them, found out that they could unpack their bags and stay on in Killarney? I, I suppose it, it, I was live at the time on Radio Kerry just giving an interview in relation to um, what was happening at the scene and news came through at that moment in time uh, from the minister, from Minister Norma Foley uh, through Radio Kerry that in fact the Ukrainian refugees were not going to be moving to Westport and County Mayo. Uh, there was great sense of uh, relief uh, and joy that they could uh, after a very, very difficult uh, 24 or 48 hours effectively since they found out on Monday uh, that they were going to be moved to Westport. Um, the scenes were something to behold and to see our, our own uh, Irish community and many other nationalities coming out and support in Killarney of the Ukrainian refugees and to see young kids uh, in their uniforms uh, in schools they've been um, unable to go back tomorrow uh, to those schools, to their friends uh, I mean, of all ages. Because so many of those children had obviously said goodbye to their schoolmates, had packed up their bags. They thought they were on the move. This was absolutely last minute, this U-turn, wasn't it? Most certainly, they didn't want to say goodbye. They really had hope and faith that the system would see uh, justice and that people uh, would be able to remain in Killarney. And thankfully, uh, that has happened and uh, people are able to stay in Killarney. Uh, and bear in mind, there's been a lot of work done in integrating uh, the Ukrainian community uh, in Killarney. Um, I sit as president, actually, of the Chamber of Tourism and Commerce in Killarney and the Ura Ukrainian uh, support group uh, to help integrate and provide uh, services and schools and, and work with the community to integrate them into our town. In terms of the new accommodation, is that temporary? Uh, some is, uh, because it was a very last-minute decision, and some of it will be uh, for a couple of months uh, and maybe even longer as the contracts that are in place with IPAS and the length of time that they're there are, are no different to the contracts that are in place all over the country. So uh, some are for a couple of nights uh, and some are more temporary, uh, are more permanent than that. Uh, the Minister, Minister Roderick O'Gorman, has said that the system is at breaking point. Now, I know Killarney has, I think, taken in more refugees than any other town or city in the country. Um, do you see that? Do you see a system at breaking point now? Uh, most certainly we do and I was very conscious and so was the entire community and, and the NGOs and the support groups in Killarney. We wanted to be able to offer a solution uh, to the Minister to solve the impasse that we had um, but it is at breaking point and look uh, Killarney and the area that I am Mayor of and I represent uh, has the largest uh, number of Ukrainian refugees uh, in uh, any local electoral area in the country. Uh, we have the beds but let it be clear our services are struggling and it is taking every bit of uh, interagency support to ensure uh, that we provide for these people who are fleeing uh, the war in Ukraine and be able to provide the services uh, as they just rightly deserve. Uh, Timmy Dooley, how do you think this was all handled? 
Look, I don't want to be critical of IPAS because they're human beings working behind the scenes under enormous pressure. There's a very significant wave uh, of Ukrainians and also people from outside of Ukraine. Uh, that so, so you've seen a very considerable number uh, of additional people coming to the country in recent months. There is a limited amount of, of uh, you know, facilities available like hotels who are able to contract these people in. Uh hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Um, there has been an effort made and there was some great outpourings in March and April of people who wanted to take uh, people into their homes. That hasn't materialised to the extent that it might because many families thought it would be a, a short-term solution. So the people who are trying to facilitate this are under enormous pressure. Well, also because they didn't get through a lot of those pledges. I mean, there's lots of questions around the well, efficiency is, of that system. There, there, but just to be clear, I suppose, Brendan Griffin, the TD down there, the Fine Gael TD, he said he provided a list to the Minister of accommodation in Clarny and the surrounding area that would have housed these people. Yeah, and I think... Twice Nile, over. Yeah, and I think... So the accommodation Nile, was there. Yeah, Niall and Brendan have, have identified that. But I think Niall, even in his Skype tonight, has indicated that some of this is short-term. Um, you, when kids are in school, of course, you have to provide some kind of a permanent structure. But we also have to be careful that we don't lose sight of where these people have come from. And, you know, there's a lot of commentary. Is that appropriate? Is it good enough for what we're providing them? It's the best that we can do right now. And there's additional resources being made available to try and improve uh, the facilities and the accommodation. But I, we, we've a lot of Ukrainians in County okay. Clare. I've met with them. I've been to Kiev. I know where these people have come from. The vast majority of them are really appreciative and delighted with the plan. So we've got to be careful here that we don't create this, um, you know, divide in society. Because there are some people who, who, who don't have a, a home tonight within our own community who are wondering why all the, 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 the panic for the Ukrainian community and you're not doing the same for us. And the reality is that the state is, it's making a huge effort to provide suitable accommodation. But there's a shortage and that shortage applies to Irish people as well. So I, I think we don't want to divide society here. Is there a division here, Anatoly, do you think? Absolutely none. Uh, I agree with uh, a lot of the things Timia said in the sense that 
I've, you know, as as a as a community organization representing Ukrainian refugees, uh, we feel that the government's doing an awful lot to accommodate the refugees, and majority of the, you know, the vast majority of refugees are very happy with the conditions that they end up in, and very grateful for any help that they receive. One thing I will add is that there needs to be longer-term planning because, from, for example, in the last few days, we've seen an EU directive allowing temporary protection scheme to run until 2024. So, and, you know, large large portions of Ukraine or Ukraine's territory have been destroyed beyond imagination. The people will not, if the war stopped next week, which we will hope for, the people will not be able to go back there for years or maybe even decades. For example, some of, in my own family, right? And there needs to be a longer-term plan. We do re- recognize that the systems are at breaking point. There is a shortage of beds and accommodation. But, you know, we, we and we've, we've seen the government do an awful lot of work, but it's mm. firefighting. There's a lack of strategic thinking, the lack of strategic planning, and lack of vision, for example, for what to do with these people in the years to come, which yeah. unfortunately will have to be done. And because, Sean, the fact is that accommodation has been found mm. for these people, which means particularly these young children who have been in school there, who have made friends, who have settled in, uh, over the last eight months, won't have to move again. The fact that they didn't identify this accommodation before telling these people last minute they'd have to move, what does it say about the system and how the department are coping with the influx? Well, I think the system is under a huge amount of pressure. Obviously, like last year, the system dealt with 7,500 people seeking international protection. This year, it's been 55,000. It's probably going to go up by another 1,000 or 2,000 before the end of this month even. And there is no end in sight, unfortunately, as Anatoly is saying, even if things ended tomorrow, we don't know what that would look like. And people could be here until 2024 or even longer. That's a very difficult thing to plan long-term for. But at the same time, within weeks of the war breaking out, the government was talking about identifying 80 buildings it already had picked out in March across the country that could be retrofitted for accommodation and suitable accommodation. Don't see a lot of them having come into the system. And that was months ago where there could be a lot more longer-term planning that should have been done and doesn't seem to have been done. To put the people kind of through that, when they've already been through so much and when the community has so clearly embraced them and wants them there and wants to help them, uh, I think is something that shouldn't have happened. Uh, Lynn Boylan, look, do you accept they are under phenomenal pressure? The department had to find accommodation for 7,000 people last year. It's 55,000 people this year. And mistakes like this are going to happen. Is that good enough? Without a doubt, they're under a huge amount of pressure. But this is not the first time this has happened. I mean, this has actually exposed the flaws in the system of how we treat uh, refugees. So, I mean, in, in the, the village of Glendalkin, where, where I live, uh, there was a direct provision centre where the, the residents of that home were being told that they were going to be moved uh, and they weren't told where they were going to go. And again, the community rallied around them because their kids were in the local schools. They were part of all of the local groups. Um, and again, that, that decision was reversed, but the families went through a huge amount of pressure. That was a good few years ago. So this is not the first time this has happened. So there are, there are huge amounts of pressure now because of the, the, the numbers that have come in in a very short amount of time. Um, and you have to accept that, yes, it's a hard job, but it's the, the method and the procedures were here long before what happened in Killarney. So and what we- do you think then are the short term solutions because unfortunately we are where we are uh, and it looks like there's potentially going to be more people coming in to this country and we have the minister saying we're at breaking point and you hear the councillor there in Killarney saying we are at breaking point too. Well yeah and I think but one of the issues that came out of the the Killarney uh, situation was that some of the providers who are being remunerated from the state are refusing to accept male refugees. Now if you're getting a contract with the state I don't think it's appropriate that you dictate then who you will and won't take and I think that was part of the problem of why this building was being vacated um, 
So that's part of the issue as well. We, we need every building that's vacant that can be retrofitted to, to be done. And of course, then we also have the, to coincide with that, the housing crisis for people living in Ireland. And, and is all need... the accommodation, Lynn, suitable? Well, like I, I know for a fact that some of the offers and pledges uh, were not taken up. I know personally people who've made offers and pledges that were not contacted or were contacted months later when the house was no longer available. So there are issues in that side of the system, but also the long term, because as we said, it's going to be a number of years. Um, so we need Minister Dara O'Brien to revise the targets. The Housing for All uh, project now is not fit for purpose. And we've constantly called from t to look at that because we have a, we have a housing crisis crisis across the board uh, at every level um, that has to be addressed. And now we have more people coming into the country. So he has to accept that his housing for all needs to be revised. And then we need, and the, in Minister Roderick O'Gorman's department, to look at the procedures yeah. that are in place and to make sure that refugees are, are treated equally and without discrimination and are treated appropriately, that you cannot give someone 48 I mean, hours notice and tell them they have to pack up and, and, and move. Um, Timmy Dooley, Roderick O'Gorman did say that the transit centre at City West is nearing capacity and there is a possibility that there might be a pause on entry to new arrivals in City West due to this accommodation shortage. He said that couldn't be discounted. Do you think that is the right approach here? Well, I, I'm not so sure about, the, about that statement. There may be a pause in terms of what can go into City West. But I don't expect there will be a pause at what has come into the country. I think it shouldn't be beyond our capacity, even if it is in very temporary or very substandard accommodation. It'll be far better than the locations that they have come from, where I have witnessed at first hand where they have, where they have left. So I think we have a, there's a burden on all of us across the political divide to ensure that we find as quickly as possible alternative accommodation until such time as people can be put into uh, better quality uh, and more suitable accommodation. I mean, there, there, there was, as you know, a proposal out in Gormanstown that there would be people uh, maintained in tents. I, I think that should be a last resort, particularly in the winter. Um, but if that's what it has to be, rather than saying, no, we won't accept you in the country, well, then then, 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 then so be it, uh, as a temporary short-term measure. Would you agree with that, I suppose, um, that we should just continue to bring people in even if the accommodation that is available to them isn't ideal, isn't perfect. It's better than nothing. Is that OK? Is that attitude? No, I, just to be careful, I, I, I'm not saying it's better than nothing. It's, it's much better than being uh, under uh, the threat yeah. of, of bomb attacks and missile attacks from Putin. Yeah, I just At want least, to ask you know, your yeah. opinion on that. I, I agree with Timmy because, you know, a, a lot of people coming into Ireland, you know, they, they, they try and find out information about the state of affairs in Ireland and they are aware of their accommodation issues. But like Timmy pointed out, for a lot of people, that is better because, you know... We are hearing reports, anecdotal reports, of, you know, people being packed into converted nightclubs, converted bars, you know, bunk beds, people stacked to the rafters. Is, is that... Is that... Are you saying that's OK if, if that's what it takes? I wish it wasn't happening, but I know people that would be okay with that because, like Timmy pointed out, the circumstances that await them in Ukraine are far worse than the circumstances being offered to them in Ireland. And, and they'll is be happy that happening? Um, I'm, I'm, I have been, we have been made aware of some very substandard accommodation in certain instances. 
and people in those instances, uh, you know, it depends on the person whether they're willing to accept that and wait it out until the circumstances improve, or whether they try and improve the circumstances so somehow themselves. They reach out on Facebook. They try to reach out to hosts. For example, we mentioned ple housing pledges here mm -hmm. a number of times. And for example, an organization that has sprung up to deal with that issue, like helping Irish hosts, they have done ama amazing work identifying people like that and matching them with hosts in certain areas. And that's people that you know, that's just regular people, not community workers, not you know, not anybody trained to do that. That have sprung into action to deal with that issue and uh, take onto themselves. To, to deal with that, with those sort of situations. Yeah, where there is substandard uh, accommodation, Sean, I mean, the government are kind of powerless, aren't they? I mean, the people providing the accommodation, they have the power here. The government need beds. Well, there is an element of that when the contracts run out, of course, that they, they are for a certain amount of time. And if the hotel decides, well, we, you know, we're going back to trading and we're going back to normal business, that, you know, the government can make their offers. And if they say, no, there's not a huge amount they could do, they have to sort of move on to alternative accommodation. And you would hope in a lot of cases that that won't happen, but I'm sure there will be cases where that will happen as well. So there is a bit of that. But at the same time, you can't, as Lynn was saying, really divorce this from the wider picture on housing. The initial problem with getting people out of direct provision was there was no mm -hmm. rental accommodation that they could afford. And there's now no rental accommodation that a lot of people can afford in the country. The amount of new homes built this year is going to be somewhere in the round of 25,000. We've got 55,000 people already looking for accommodation from overseas, 11,000 on the homelessness list. So even if the government bought up that entire stock, which obviously isn't going to happen, there wouldn't be enough accommodation to go around. So there will be people, unfortunately, in some standard accommodation. But as the two guys have both said there, in some certain cases, it is a, a needs must. Uh, to me, the pledge and the promise for own-door accommodation for people, that's gone out the window, hasn't it? Really, realistically, at the moment. I just think not enough of those facilities uh, have materialised. Um, there's a shortage. I mean, we know there's a housing crisis in Ireland without any Ukrainian, without without any uh, other refugee presenting here. Look, I, I know other countries have, have had short-term measures where, I mean, in the Netherlands, um, they chartered uh, a number of uh, cruise ships as a short-term measure. Um, I certainly think that that should be looked at here. We're getting to that point where that would at least be better than having people in really substandard accommodation. I know long-term that's not where you want to be. Uh, it would, should be seen as a last resort, but it's something that has been uh, utilised by, by, by other countries. And I think, I know it was put to the, to the department here at a stage and they were, they were hesitant about it and didn't proceed with it. I think, think now. Consider it? I, I, well, I, I do now because. When, Would you, you support look, that, Lynn Boylan? When, when you that look idea? at what has happened in the short time, and I just finished a little, Lynn, when you look at what has happened in the last couple of days with the bombing of Lviv, where people kind of thought once you were in uh, West, Western Ukraine, you were safe, that's now on its heels. And I think we'll, we'll start seeing just, considerable more just number to of. Add to that point, nowhere in Ukraine is safe. Yeah. Absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Okay, Ellen Boylan, would you support that idea of well, using cruise ships? Well, I mean, I think what we should be looking at first is the, I think there's 100,000 vacant properties across the state, um, to mean, which would address the, the housing list and also free up a lot of other accommodation. I think that that needs to be an urgent, more long-term measure. Yeah. All right, look, I'm going to leave it there. My thanks to Anatoly and to Niall. The rest of the panel will be staying with us. And after the break, what exactly are data centres and do they threaten our energy supply?
you're very welcome back. Well, recently talk of data centres has become all the more common on the airwaves, in the papers and in the halls of Leinster House. But what exactly are they? And why are they facing such opposition? Well, Fianna Fáil's Timmy Dooley, Sinn Féin's Lynn Boylan and Sean Defoe of Byron Media are still with us. And we're also joined by activist Dylan Murphy. Dylan, you're very welcome to the programme. Sean, I'm going to start with you, a bit of an idiot's guide. What exactly is a data centre? Yeah, I'm good for the idiot's guys, all right. <laughs> uh, break it down. Don't yeah, yeah break it. Like no, that. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't dare say our esteemed senators would, uh, would give you this. Um, but it's a, pretty much what exactly what it says in the chain. It is a set centre for your data. So if you uh, are using your phone, if you're sending videos or watching videos or any of that, all of that has to be stored somewhere. It doesn't just go up into the cloud that actually floats around like a cloud. It is like the earthbound anchor for all of that. So it's where all of that information, if you buy something off of Amazon, if you're sending a tweet with a video in it, whatever, all of that is stored somewhere and they are in data centres. And the reason that they are controversial is that they use an awful lot of energy. 14% of our national energy last year, potentially up to about 30% by the year 2030. They use an awful lot of water as well, because obviously you have to keep all of those servers cool. So when you see a data centre, it's like a big empty warehouse full of big blocks of servers, sort of like something from a Bond movie, if you were to imagine There's it that way. lots of computers, basically, isn't H it? Hundreds and hundreds of computers storing terabytes of data at a time, all of which need to be kept cool, which is part of why people want to locate them in Ireland. Our, our climate is generally good. If you have one in middle of Spain, for example, would be a lot harder to, to keep it cool and to keep all those servers there. So it is a centre for all of the things that really drive not only the modern economy, but everything we do every day on our phones and, and on our laptops. And so computers. why is it that the, why is them using 14% of our energy a bad thing? Because we have a bit of an energy shortage just a minute, as people will know, and all these warnings of blackouts and amber alerts and various different things. And I suppose it has progressively become since sort of 2012, 2015, every year a bigger slice of the energy pie and is going to keep on going, as I mentioned, up to 2030 and, and even beyond that as more and more data centres are approved here. And, and other countries have data centres, but in terms of the amount of energy they consume... We're a bit of an outlier, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, in terms of the percentage of the pie. So there's about 2 billion data centres across the world. I think there's 66 on the last count in Ireland and there's others that have planning permission in the future. But obviously, other countries have different energy systems. Some of them have nuclear and generate an awful lot of power and can take that. We're in a bit of a different situation under a bit of pressure and on this big drive now to become this renewable superpower, as the Taoiseach put it, uh, at the Ardesh the other week. Um, I suppose the problem with that is how do you get there? When are we going to get there? We don't exactly do big infrastructure well in this country. And if suddenly 30% of the energy is gone before a single household sees it or a new data centre like the one that has uh, planning permission or is going through planning permission in Clare, if that is created, that is about 200,000 households you are adding onto the grid. So it's right. a big chunk. Uh, Dylan, why are you so opposed to the idea of data centres in Ireland, the volume that we have and increasing that number? Yeah, that's a good question. But the thing is, I wouldn't say that we're necessarily opposed to data centres. Like, we understand that it's critical infrastructure that's needed, but it's just the way data centres are currently done. It's not done in a sustainable way in Ireland, and there's potential uh, to do it a lot better. Like, the issue we talked about there, why is that figure 14% so, um, so high, and what's the issue with it? It's because it's the equivalent, and this is from the CSO recently, it's the equivalent of all of the homes in rural Ireland, that 14%. So it's a massive chunk, so you can understand during the energy crisis that we're going through at the moment when people are asked to do their bit, and then they look at these data centres consuming so much electricity, it's kind of like, well, and do they generate any of their own electricity? Well, see, the thing is, recently at the uh, CRU, they said that they needed to provide their own on-site 
uh, generation. But the issue with that, that on-site generation is usually fossil fuels. So it's gas, it's diesel. So that's mm. contributing more emissions. So that's, that's a big issue we have there with the data centres. Are you concerned, Lynn? Uh, absolutely. It's an unmitigated disaster the way it's been rolled out and, and it rests solely at the door of Fianna Gael. Uh, and what I can't understand is why Fianna Fáil and the Greens seem to be just owning it as, as a collective where this was there was no strategic planning when, these, uh, rolled, when the red carpet was rolled out for the data centres. And while we have, I suppose, a, a bit of a pause, it's not a moratorium on the grid connections, Gas Networks Ireland have now gone to the CRU and said, hey folks, we're actually really concerned because the data centres now are looking for gas connections and that's going to put us under pressure. At the same time we have the amber alerts on our grid we've also signed up to a 15% reduction in our gas use to try and ease pressure because of the, the war in Ukraine and now we have data centres who are going to be sucking up all of the gas as well which then has implications for our climate targets. So it's just that it was just so badly planned no strategy about it. We could have had data centres producing their own renewable energy uh, closely connected where the grid could take them as well and also district heating so that you would have benefits in terms of new houses that were built. None of that was done. Even Irish Water told us they have to go back to the planning permission on data centres and say you can uh, be more efficient with your water use. They're not even mandated to use the most efficient uh, building and water uh, infrastructure. And interestingly, uh, Timmy Dooley, there was an article in the Sunday Business Post this week, uh, the minister overseeing this, Arshin Smith, basically saying he wanted to double down on our commitment to data centres. Yeah. Does that not concern well, you, given what you're well, hearing from the our, panel? Our industrial policy going back to the 70s has been uh, very progressive and proactive. We have succeeded in attracting some of the top pharma. The, all the top pharma companies are based here. Some of them have their European and, and worldwide headquarters here. Same with the tech sector. It employs 200,000 people. Data centres, in my mind, are what advanced factories were in the 70s. You look at the data, and it's not just, and, and Sean has, has rightly identified, and a lot of people associate it with just videos and social media. It's not like we're all moving into working from home. The companies that we work for used to store their data on racks in their offices, computers in their offices. Data centres are just pulling all of those together in the one location. From domestic, whether it's banks, whether it's our HSE files, all of that are stored in these centres. It's a, it's a critical part of you, the future economy. Dylan, and it's such an important part of it. This now, is we the can, future. I just want to let Dylan yeah, back in here. Yeah, but Do you I just need to that? conclude on this. There is an issue at the moment in relation to the supply of electricity. And I and have gas. my issues. And gas. I have, and my, I have my views about how we got to that particular position. But, you know, we can always find a, a reason not to do something. But yet we have to find gain, gainful employment for our graduates, for our students and for our people. There's this is the next wave of activity. But, no, 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 sorry. That's, that's the old canard that you like to push and others like to push. But if you don't have the data centres, you're not going to have the big tech companies, you're not going to have the big pharma companies, you're not going to okay, have... OK, let Dylan back in here, because Dylan, you're shaking your head here. He's an environmental activist. I have a responsibility yes, to that. put for Nothing whatsoever. But I have a responsibility uh, as an elected politician or as a politician generally to ensure that there's employment for our people. OK, can we, let, can we just, can we just let Dylan... responsibility to protect households on their energy bills, and we're actually subsidising data centres as big energy users through the PSO levy and through that subvention that we only found out about that's been in existence since 2011. And now yeah, they're going to be eligible for the, the business right. grant under the, the cost of living budget. Dylan, I want to let you back in there. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I think, like, 
one of the issues with data centers and one of the kind of things that's not talked about enough is the fact that, of course, it's critical infrastructure, but the thing is, the data that's within those data centers is not being monitored, it's not being legislated, we don't know, it's not being regulated properly, we don't know what's in the data centers and if that data that's in there is being used efficiently. Though the best uh, figures... If we need all the data that we're storing. Exactly, exactly. So, like, the best data that we have is from a private company in America and they audited over a thousand companies um, across 14 different countries and they found that only 14% of the data that those companies were using were business critical data. The rest of it was dark data and rot data. So it's only 14% in those data centers that's actually useful. It's the critical stuff that Timmy's yeah. talking about there. Timmy, did the government ask that question? Uh, have they any interest in what's been stored? Or Not in no. according to a I mean, parliamentary the, question the, the, that I got a response to. They said it's not their role to monitor what's in the data centers. And I should hope that no government would want to be monitoring the data You in should at centers, least know. You don't, don't need to know the detail of what's in well, it, but you need to know what, where, what category does it fall into. Where? I mean, the Sunday Business Post had an article that the US security could be using uh, some of the data centers to host their data. Are we looking at that from a security risk? Yeah. So we I'd need be to more know worried now about what the Russians, Lynn, are doing rather than worrying about what the Americans are doing. Is it Bitcoin? Is it to help people with online okay. technology and working from home? Sean. Or is it pictures of cats and dogs? I, I Sean, what, know just at the moment, what is the happening? policy at the moment? For these data centres, do we know? Is it? It's fairly open door. In fairness, and there was a, there was a Keep new policy coming. statement and a new plan that was out uh, that basically said, "Yeah, look, we have these sort of vague ideas that they should have some extra energy and they should be yeah. able to produce their own gas, but not anything strict in the planning system." Yeah, it was all. No it would be great and it would be helpful, wasn't it? it if would, they could produce exactly, their own. It would be fine if it did. But no, can we go back to me because there's one figure actually that uh, no one in government has ever been able to tell me uh, to back on the employment figures because there's only about 1,800 people employed in directly in data centres. I know you're saying the indirect, but there's no evidence that those companies wouldn't come here anyway. Mm. Uh, it might be a little bonus on it, but it's not right. like that the industrial policy that has been followed okay, by the states look, since the 1970s, if it wasn't there, they'd have come anyway. Let's be honest now. There's a challenge here. There's other countries there that want Leave it there for now. My thanks to all of my panel this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok. It's tonight to be MTV. But from all the late team here, good night. We'll get back to that issue. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.